Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kellen, I'm curious your thoughts on how it went last week with our interview with John Michael Greer. To me, it was fascinating. You know, pretty much everything that I've learned about Collapse has come from you. And so to hear from another perspective and somebody who's written books on the topic, who it seems like is a highly respected individual in the Collapse community and has distinguished himself as kind of a thought leader in the space, you know, if nothing else, it just helped validate a lot of what you've been saying. And I feel like it was just a lot of fun, too. I hope that we have opportunities in the future to do more of these kind of interviews. Yeah, and I spoke with him after the interview, and he expressed interest in coming back and doing another one. So I'm sure in the future we'll do this again, and, and the next time I'd like to dig in deeper, right? We touched on a ton of topics. We talked about a whole lot of stuff. I'd like to talk to him and really get into his thoughts on things like the decline of the American empire and really pick his brain on some of those things. But I also really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. He's a really interesting guy, for sure. And I've read a few of his books, but it made me want to go out and read his other 70 so today's topic is one that we touched on briefly in previous episodes, is one that we touched on briefly in the second episode, which was the episode where we talked about societal complexity. And one of the things that we talked about was supply chains and how fragile those supply chains can be, how fragile we've seen them be in this last year, 2020. And so today we thought we'd dig in a little bit deeper on that to discuss not only how supply chains work, but why they're fragile We'll discuss some examples of their fragility in the past and then also talk about how that relates to collapse and what we can expect to see from supply chains in the future. So, you know, I sit in this room where we're recording this episode and every single object here went through its own supply chain process. You know, from the desk that we're sitting at, the chairs we're sitting on, to the microphone and the laptop we're using to record, to the two by fours holding the room together, to the clothes we're wearing and the food and water that we've consumed that keep us alive. All of that came from a supply chain. 
And I think that most people take for granted the fact that they can go to the grocery store and pick anything up at any time and not think twice about where it came from or what it had to go through to get there. So wherever you are right now listening to this episode, just look around, look at your surroundings and see if you can count the number of items that required a supply chain in order to end up where they are right now. Because my guess is you probably couldn't count them all. Each item that you see represents multiple businesses making a profit off of getting it from one step of the chain to the next and into your hands. Without a secure supply chain, I have no doubt that our society would crumble. Yeah, and I feel like supply chains aren't new. They've been around as long as society has been around. But going back to what you said in reference to that episode around societal complexity, I think today's supply chains are much more complex than ever before. You know, I think back to previous centuries, and yeah, you go to the local market, you get your food from somebody who either grew it themselves or they're they're selling it for somebody that they know personally that grew it themselves, right? Maybe you all help each other build your houses. There's the local blacksmith down the street, right? There's just so many fewer steps in the supply chain of previous times than there is in today's world. Yeah, so I think back to, you know, a few thousand years ago and maybe I'm buying like a textile at the market. Like it probably was all locally sourced, if not by the same person. And so it was just much simpler. And not only are supply chains getting more complex now, but I also think that some of the stuff that's made available to us is just so silly and useless. Last week, John Michael Greer in our interview mentioned the vast amounts of like waste that we produce. His specific example was with the Billy Bass fish plaque thingy that sings to you. Did you ever have one of those? No, but I remember when they were all the rage. Yeah, so my dad had one. I knew other people who had one out in the garage. Like, they were all over. And if you don't know what it is, it was this big fake bass fish that was mounted on a plaque, made to look as if it was taxidermied, but it has a motion sensor on it. So if you walk by it, it starts flopping back and forth, and it sings you a song. But each part of that stupid thing, from the wood plaque that it sits on, to the rubber that made the skin, to the internal mechanics, and the speaker, and the batteries, and those each likely came from a different manufacturing plant somewhere, which got their parts from other factories, which got the raw materials from other people that mined it out of the ground. And so each step in that process required competence, precision, labor, money, caused the creation of waste, and perhaps most importantly, energy. And I think that on a basic level, we all get supply chains more or less. We understand what they are. But I think it would be appropriate to do a little bit of an example of one just to get an idea of how complex they can be. So for an example, let's use alkaline batteries like the ones that might power Billy Bass. So batteries use multiple earth elements like zinc, like manganese, and potassium. They also use things like steel and paper, plastic, and brass. So all of that goes into the little AA and AAA batteries that you see. And each of those raw materials has to be mined, which is going to be done by using machines and tools that went through their own supply chain processes. And zinc, in particular, which is used as the anode for the battery, so the positive side, it's mined primarily underground, but also in some open pits in more than 50 countries. And that's something you don't really think about often. There's this whole entire industry around zinc. I don't even know what zinc is, right? About 28.5 billion tons of zinc is mined each year. After being extracted, it has to be purified and filtered, then sectioned off and sold to different companies like battery companies that might use it. So the same process is going to be done with the manganese, it's going to be done with the steel, the paper, the plastic, so on and so forth. 
The manufacturer then has to go through the process of producing the batteries using the raw materials. And beyond just those raw materials, the manufacturer has to source things like ink for the labels, parts for the numerous machines, the labor. And along the way, each thing is ordered using precise formulas to be able to predict and forecast the future need for those products. They're going to do that based on current inventory levels and also based on predicted demand for the product they're creating in the future. And any variance in that, too high or too low, could mean financial or logistical problems for the company. Each raw material has its own price, which can vary based on supply and demand and also based on other conditions happening in the market. So the whole supply chain relies on at least some form of stability in all these different factors. For example, if the cost of oil increases and therefore the cost of gasoline increases, then the cost to mine and deliver the zinc to the factory is also going to increase. And by increasing the price of zinc, then the price of the battery has to increase. And then the price of Billy Bass has to increase. So just like the raw materials, the same amount of precision and complexity comes on the labor side. You have to have the right amount of laborers with the right skill sets, doing the right jobs at the right time. And they have to work with precision and competence to get the correct job done. So when it comes to the process of actually making a battery or anything else... It's not really the purpose of what we're talking about today. You can watch any video on YouTube, the, the how it's made videos, right? I've always enjoyed watching those. But just by watching those, you can see how much machinery and precision and complexity is involved in every single process. The amount of energy involved in the use of that machinery, you know, the importance of each machine running correctly, it's all pretty evident. In the end, you get a battery. 15 billion per year, actually, is how many we manufacture which are then sent down the supply chain to the Billy Basses, who sourced it as one small part of their large chain. So now Billy Bass has their batteries, but now they also have to get the speaker and all those, these other parts that have their own complex chains involved as well. And so I think about that when I look at a Billy Bass and I think, why? That's so stupid. That seems like so much work and effort to go through to produce this stupid thing that's going to end up in the trash in six months, right? And I think we all know that it's because capitalism and money if there's money to be made it will be made but that doesn't necessarily make it smart or efficient but i like the point that john michael greer made there that the amount of energy that we're putting into producing these types of things just shows how much of a wasteful economy we've become as i hear you outline in that specific example all the steps that are needed for just one tiny part of one silly product. You know, it makes me think about shortages that I've seen in any sort of a product. And people tend to just have this attitude of like, well, why don't they just hurry and make more? But I don't think people understand that things take time. When I was doing my MBA, I had an operations class. And I remember this specific statement where the instructor said something like, it takes a woman nine months to create a child. So then why don't we just have nine women each spend one month and together they can all make a child, right? Just illustrating the point that some things require time. If you need to ramp up production of something that requires buying more machinery and contracts that need to be made there, it requires hiring more people and training those people and working out about 10,000 other little details just to increase the supply to meet increased demand. So I know part of the purpose of talking about supply chains isn't just to talk about how we're wasting a lot of energy and resources, but it's also meant to discuss the way that these very complex supply chains make us vulnerable, right? Yeah, that's right. And we've all seen examples of supply chains having disruptions and the problems that that can cause. And all of that happening in the last couple decades of relative economic prosperity. 
So you can imagine the future of collapsing societies going through catabolic collapse, how the issues are only going to be exacerbated. So when it comes to vulnerabilities, I mean, with a complex supply chain, like the example we just spoke about, you know, what happens when something is disrupted with the mining of the zinc, right? The miners go on strike because they're not making enough money. That can complicate all of Billy Bass's operations because of that strike. And when the end user isn't getting the Billy Basses that they're demanding, it may not make sense to them why. But being the guy working in the manufacturing plant that runs the machine that separates the zinc into each battery, like, it's pretty obvious what's happening. Now, obviously, because of this, redundancies are created within supply chains in order to mitigate those risks and to try and protect us from the consequences of those small disruptions or mistakes. But the truth of of it is that we are in a capitalist society, and in the end, it really comes down to profit. I think our supply chains could be much more resilient than they are now if the bottom line didn't matter so much, right? A company could fork out more money to secure and shore up their supply chains to create redundancies so that if this mine goes on strike, then I've got 10 other mines that I could source from. But the problem is is that's an expensive thing to do. If a company does that, then they're likely going to be outpriced by a company who doesn't. And that's where things come into play, like just-in-time supply chains, which we mentioned very briefly in that second episode. But it's basically just the way that a company can make sure they are as lean as possible to save as much money as possible. But in the end, it is what makes supply chains vulnerable. Yeah, you know, as things continue to evolve in the business world, there's always this push for more efficiency, right? And when you get into operations, there's these predominant models and ways of doing things like Six Sigma and Lean, and it's all focused on being as efficient as possible. And in this case, like you're talking about, just-in-time inventory is way more efficient than at-the-ready inventory. Like if you're a supply chain manager, one of the biggest trade-offs that you have to make decisions around is, do you have enough excess stock to give yourself a cushion, you know, if anything negative comes around or if things don't work out perfectly? Or do you run a really tight model to keep costs low? And like you said, if everybody else, if all of your competitors are running a really tight model trying to keep costs low, your company is going to have to have some other differentiator that makes them excel in the market so that they feel like they can afford to carry a surplus of inventory. So Kellen, you mentioned just-in-time versus at-the-ready inventory methods. Do you want to explain maybe a little what that means for listeners who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, let's say that based on our historical sales records at a company, I know that each month I can be expected to sell 100 gizmos. The goal then is to manufacture 100 gizmos a month to have just enough. Because if I'm creating extra, that requires labor, that requires resources. And one of the biggest things it requires is storage, right? I have to store all that inventory somewhere, which is expensive. And so... Even when it comes to all the raw materials that I'm receiving from other companies so that I can make my product, I don't want to have to have a ton of extra and sit on that and store it somewhere. I want to receive just enough and I want to receive that just in time. Not only that, but there's all sorts of other arguments for not sitting on a surplus of raw materials or of your own product, right? If the market changes, you don't want to be stuck with a bunch of extra. You want to be able to be lean and agile and be able to shift and pivot quickly. And so at the ready is just the other side of that, right? Instead of receiving things just in time, 
you have enough extra that as things come along, as soon as a need arises, you have what you need at the ready. And there's trade-offs to each. You can think of it kind of like how you manage your own bank account, right? Some people live on the very edge of their budget, which means that they get to enjoy more nice things than somebody who doesn't. It could be argued that they get to live in the moment more than others. But let's say a medical emergency arises, all of a sudden they find themselves in trouble. Whereas somebody who's been budgeting, who's saved up, you know, an emergency savings in their bank account, they're not getting to live at perhaps the same lifestyle as somebody else, but they will be way better off when there's a bump in the road. Yeah, and the vulnerabilities with supply chains can come from both ends. On the one hand, we've talked about the miner that's going on strike. And so one of the trade-offs with Just-In-Time is that it makes you vulnerable on both sides because on the one hand, if there is a cutoff of supply, in our example, the miners who are on strike, it makes it much more difficult to not only get more product but to be able to sell to meet the demand. But on the other end, if you also get an increase in demand, you're not able to meet that demand because you can't simply just demand more from your supplier because guess what? Your supplier is also using Just-In-Time. So it has to go all the way up the chain, and it takes a long time, like you said, for production to meet that new demand. And that is obviously something that we saw pretty severely with COVID-19 and, for example, toilet paper. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, and as I've been anticipating this conversation, I've looked into several examples, and that's one of the most visible, right, that everyone saw recently was this lack of toilet paper. And one thing I'll mention before really diving into that is that businesses aren't naive to this. They're not naive to their vulnerabilities and that supply chains can be disrupted. Especially in critical industries, businesses are expected to have continuity plans, you know, and they often put in place these disaster recovery plans, which in a lot of cases requires kind of spreading out their operations so that if something happens in one area, they can source from another, right? They're not in so much trouble. But when there are issues that affect the entire globe, those continuity plans fail. So toilet paper, right? That's a fun example because really it's a first world problem, but we got to see it as a prime example. And to me, it's fascinating because people thought that the sudden lack of toilet paper, you know, the fact that they had to wait in lines at the stores and that the shelves were empty, people thought it was because there were all these other people that were hoarding toilet paper. And yeah, there was some of that. But a lot of it came from the fact that the companies that manufacture and distribute toilet paper, a lot of the toilet paper they were making was for commercial use. 
right? It's a different kind of toilet paper. And now all of a sudden, people aren't going to the bathroom at restaurants and they're not going to the bathroom at their place of work, at their employment. Everyone's at home. And so they're wanting the kind of toilet paper that you can just go buy at the store that's meant for consumers. And it's not that easy to just repackage all the stuff that was meant for commercial use. And so it's not like there suddenly wasn't enough toilet paper in the world. There were actually warehouses full of toilet paper, but right, there were these massive rolls of toilet paper that are in massive boxes and they're packaged for commercial use and not for retail. So toilet paper is one thing, but when I start to get nervous about this issue is with something way more critical like food. And during the pandemic, right, when the pandemic first hit in March, the International Food Service Distributors Association, right, that's kind of a mouthful, but they projected that they would lose $24 billion as a result of COVID just in the next three months. And I don't know how much money they actually lost, I couldn't find anywhere that that's been reported, but that was just three months in. And the scary part is that it's not that there wasn't enough food. It was the same issue that we're talking about here with toilet paper, that the whole system was set up to be able to provide food to restaurants and to hotels. And all of a sudden people aren't staying at hotels and they're not eating at restaurants. And with toilet paper, it's one thing, you know, it can just sit in a warehouse, but with food, it's perishable. And so grocery store shelves were empty, and yet millions and you know billions of tons of food are just going to waste. Yeah, I remember for a while there was all that talk of like the pigs that were being slaughtered by the millions and buried in mass graves because they simply couldn't be put through the supply chain. And yet you had people lined up at food banks needy for food. They couldn't get it. And so there's this huge disconnect between We've got the product on the one end, but we can't get the product to you on the other. And it's because of the lack of resiliency in the supply chains. And it's fascinating because the same exact thing was happening all over. And it caused a chain reaction. When it started with toilet paper, it set off, for whatever reason, right, this panic of, I've got to go buy all the freaking toilet paper I can right now, because if I don't, I'm not going to have toilet paper for a long time. And so that's where you did get people hoarding it right? That didn't help the situation, but that wasn't the cause of it. But there was all of a sudden this surge in demand. I know for my sake, I was lucky to have a case that I could rely on. But even after like two months, I finally ran out and I had to spend several hours going from store to store to try and find it. And people were so freaked out about it that they were buying more than they needed, which made it so that people that needed it didn't have access. And with toilet paper, it was kind of silly, right? It was just this joke that everyone was like, are you serious? This is so stupid. Why are we doing this? But it did start to get scary in some other areas in that, you know, certain food shelves were empty. I couldn't get rice. I couldn't get flour. I couldn't get beans. Like a lot of that stuff at the local Walmart or wherever, the shelves were empty. And then it started hitting things like cleaning supplies. And obviously, perhaps the most notable was in masks. There was a while where, especially the N95 masks, were pretty much impossible to come by. And it went to such dramatic levels that the government started asking other companies who don't normally make face masks to start making face masks. Yeah, and you might hear all this and you might think, okay, pandemic, like how often does a pandemic really happen? But I want to give just a few other examples that happened previous to the pandemic that highlight how vulnerable I think we are. And I guess I should mention before going into that, I don't know if you remember this, Corey, but in a previous episode, I told you that I had talked to somebody who I know who lives in my neighborhood. 
He's the president or CEO. He runs a manufacturing facility and they do like injection molding for plastic products. And he made a comment to me about how tough this year has been. And I said, well, was it the pandemic? I just assumed everyone's having a hard time because of the pandemic. But he said, no, it's actually been all the hurricanes. I was like, what? What do you mean? And he said, yeah, all the hurricanes that come through, it causes a big disruption in us being able to even get all the resin that we need, you know, all the polypropylene or the other materials so that we can make our products. And I looked into it a little bit and it's true when there's a big storm coming, like a hurricane, you know, in Texas or Louisiana, right around the Gulf of Mexico, that's where a lot of petroleum is pumped out of the earth and processed. And you've got the refineries and you've got all the oil and gas platforms and you've got the ports and the rail systems and the warehouses and the petrochemical plants and the resin reactors, they they all shut down. And so, yeah, if this pandemic levels out and becomes less of an issue in the future, that's great. But we're going to continue to have natural disasters. And there's all sorts of other things that could cause some major disruptions in our supply chains. So anyways, I mentioned I was going to touch on a few specific examples. And Corey, I'd love to hear your reaction to some of these. A little over a year ago, December 31st, 2019, there was a minute long. It was between one and two minutes. Uh, a minute-long power outage at a Samsung production plant where they make, I think, semiconductors for their products. But that minute-long power outage caused like a two- to three-day delay in getting operating back at its regular capacity, right? When you've got a complicated operations process like that, it takes a long time to get it back up to speed. It's like a locomotive, right? If if a train comes to a stop, suddenly it takes time to get back up to speed. And so because of that minute-long power outage, it cost them $25 million. That's crazy to me, $25 million for a two-minute power outage. And on a smaller scale, I mentioned that I used to work for a short period of time at a meat processing plant. And I was kind of at the end of the line, just where the packaged meat had to be sorted into boxes. But I remember when being trained that there was this kind of metal chain we could pull that would stop the production line if there was some sort of an emergency. And they basically told us like, hey, pull this if you ever need to, but don't ever pull it. You will get fired. (laughs) Because even if we had to halt things for only just a minute or two, it would cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So let me give you another example. I think this is kind of a fun one. Sony, back in 2004, had a Christmas campaign to launch the PlayStation 2, right? And for any sort of a product like that, Christmas time is the time. That's when you make most of your sales. And they actually did everything they needed to on their end to have the supply chain work perfectly, right? And they they had produced all these PlayStation 2s in perfect timing to be ready for the Christmas season. So everything was going great until an oil tanker became stuck in the Suez Canal and that blocked ships from China carrying all these PlayStation 2s. So sales fell 90% in that run leading up to Christmas. And Sony actually had to resort to chartering Russian cargo planes to fly in their PS2s, right? That one oil tanker getting stuck caused that sort of problem. You can look at like Boeing 
in 2007. They launched the twin engine 787. They made all these promises around like, hey, we're going to set record production times. But suddenly that whole goal, that mission got shredded by some of these tiny little glitches. One of them being that they, they ran out of fasteners. And so they were having to resort to like buying more at Home Depot. And it extended their project by years. So anyways, there's so many examples of how supply chains can get easily disrupted. And sometimes the argument is like, well, for anything that we really need, we're safe because like with our capitalist society, there's all sorts of competitors. Like if one of those runs into trouble, there's plenty of others that will jump in and take their place and and fill the gap. But most of the kind of problems that we would expect as a result of collapse are the kind of problems that would affect entire industries. So I think of like food, water, medical supplies, these things that we are so dependent on. And most people don't have enough of that that they could even last a week if suddenly the supply dried up. And the way that prescriptions work for medicines, for example, is you can't have a certain amount of a medicine, right? Because they're only allowed to give it to you just in time so that you're not building a stockpile, selling it on the black market or abusing it. And that puts a lot of people at a lot of risk. For example, if there was a hiccup in the insulin supply chain, if what happened to toilet paper happened to insulin, there would be a lot of dead people and a lot of anger and a lot of suffering. So I agree. I think as time goes on, catabolic collapse is going to exacerbate the types of problems that cause disruptions in supply chains. And there are things that we can do, like we mentioned before, to make supply chains more resilient. And maybe it gets to a point, right, where those types of things are regulated and required. And you might say, okay, that's great. But the, the problem is, is that is going to cause prices of everything to increase. If manufacturers and every piece of the supply chain is having to increase their costs by making the supply chain more resilient, then in the end, that cost hits the end user. And as things get more difficult economically, as catabolic collapse continues and people are making less money and inequality increases, how are people going to be expected to pay more to get the same items that they might already be struggling to purchase today? I think what that's going to cause eventually, and we've talked about this previously, is most of the billy basses and the silly things are going to go away at some point because people simply won't have the money to buy them or any reason to because they're spending all their money on the necessities. And any of the stuff that remains that isn't an absolute necessity is going to go at an extremely high cost to the wealthy who can afford it. You know, when you think about food, for example, sweets and candies and alcohol and things like that may no longer be available to the common person, but eventually just to those who can pay the high prices required. You know, I think there will be with economic troubles and financial crises it's likely that a lot of companies will go bankrupt because of disruptions to supply chains. And as those companies go bankrupt, it creates more and more of a monopoly among the companies that remain, which are then able to increase prices. So no matter how you look at it, I see it as prices increasing in the future for everything that we receive. So not that we need to get too far into this, but I'm curious from your perspective, you've talked in the past about building this resiliency you know, I can't control what's going to happen across the world where batteries are being manufactured. And I can't control the 10,000 things that could happen to the 10,000 different supply chains that are supporting the products that I buy on a regular basis. So if I'm somebody who's expecting collapse to cause these sort of disruptions in supply chains, what do I do to make myself resilient against that? Yeah, so I think there are a few things we can do. On the one hand, we've just said things are going to get more expensive. So one way would be to ensure that you're able to afford to pay that higher price. 
become one of the wealthy, right? Or learn a trade or a skill that allows you to continue making money and living comfortably as things get harder and more expensive. If you're in a job right now that as catabolic collapse continues is going to become obsolete, learn something new that will allow you to continue to make money. Get out of debt. Make sure that you're in a good financial position, at least as good as you can be, so that you can afford, at the very least, the necessities as they increase in price. Another option, obviously, is to stockpile to some degree those necessities now. So if you have a certain amount supply of food or water or toilet paper or whatever it is, the things that you feel like you're going to need in the future, to the best that you can, keep a good amount of them for when the hiccups come. Yeah, kind of, you're saying on a personal level, use at the ready inventory instead of just in time, right? Yeah, exactly. And it has trade-offs just like it does for the companies, right? Like if you're going to stockpile a bunch of food, you do have to have a place to put it and you have to fork out the initial cost to get it. And that's not easy. And for some, it's not doable, but it is at least one option to be prepared for those disruptions. And then another is to become your own supply chain to the very best degree that you can, right? You can learn to garden, learn regenerative agriculture, learn the skills yourself, basically become as self-sustainable and independent as you can in all of your necessities so that you're not relying on a global supply chain to keep you alive. These are all really difficult things to do. Most people in today's society are not focusing on any of those things because they take for granted the fact that the supply chain just works for them. But I do think that the people who are able to get through the tough years ahead are going to be the ones who take the time and make the sacrifices to build resiliency in their own lives in these ways. You know, it could be that in the future, companies do make moves to increase their resiliency through things like vertical integration. So vertical integration in a company is when they basically acquire the supply chains above them to help mitigate any risks. So, you know, if I'm the battery company, I'm buying the zinc mine, basically. And that type of stuff is great because it does reduce the cost, but it also creates more of a monopoly. And I think right now we're witnessing with oil companies, for example, there's been a bunch of oil companies going bankrupt because they're not able to afford the expensive EROEIs. And in their place, you're seeing the Shells and the BPs and the Exxon basically taking over. And so we're seeing the little guys being pushed out and the big guys taking over the market. And it's the same thing everywhere, right? Amazon is destroying Ma and Pa brick and mortar stores all over the country. The Walmarts, the Sam Clubs, all these big companies are essentially taking over. And I think we're going to continue to see that. And again, that has its trade-offs, right? Economically speaking, it's just going to create more inequality. But in the end, that's a sacrifice for perhaps more efficiency and lower costs. We are seeing supply chain disruptions everywhere, even today, right now. You know, I want to finish my basement. I have an unfinished basement and the cost of lumber has doubled in just the last few months. And that is in large part because of the pandemic. I read an article that was saying that 450 senior executives of companies around the country were surveyed about their supply chains through the pandemic, and more than 90% of them said that their supply chains had been disrupted because of the pandemic. So right now there's this shipping container issue where they're not able to get shipping containers back to China. So China has this huge shortage and they're, they're having to charge. The rates right now are of transporting goods is somewhere around 300% of normal. And that just drives up costs. Stuff is still getting to where it needs to go way later than it needs to be there. My wife purchased something on Kickstarter over a year ago that was supposed to be here at the beginning of 2020, and it still has not arrived. She keeps getting these emails from them saying, so sorry, it's stuck in China. We can't get it here. And we're lucky that right now all this is happening for the most part in non-essential, you know, sort of luxury items. 
But I do strongly feel that one day we're going to find ourselves suddenly having to face the facts of the things that we need the most, the food, the water, the fuel, are going to be facing disruptions that are going to affect our lives. Well, I hope this conversation, for those of you listening, has helped build some awareness. You know, and these are things that maybe you've thought of before, but perhaps not to this degree. And maybe it's helping you learn this topic at a deeper level. We love all the thoughts and feedback that we're getting from listeners we hope that on this topic and others you'll continue to share with us your thoughts and things that you want to hear more about and as always we really appreciate any form of support if you can leave a review share the podcast with a friend and support us with a few bucks a month on patreon we'd really appreciate it Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.